But God does have an answer for unity. And I assume you've had some good talks about it uh, over this month. And I would like to add my thoughts as well. We'll start off the screen and and then when we get that, I'll follow that. Unity. How can we have unity? Because of my interest in practical things, I always like to know how. How can it be done? In 1 Corinthians 1, verses 10 and 11, we are told that even the early Christian church had a problem with unity. Paul said, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing. In other words, not one theology over here, another one over there, and so on. And that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now, some people would say that's impossible. But the Bible doesn't call for things that are impossible. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. And the cause, he goes on to explain, is that people were following different individuals. And as a result of that, they weren't unified together, or at least they thought they couldn't be unified. Peter must have needed to give advice on this as well. In 1 Peter 3, 8 and 9, he says, Finally, be ye all of one mind. By the way, that appears in both texts. The one mind that we are called to be in is the mind that Jesus has. In Philippians, he said, let this mind be in you. If every Christian would let this mind be in you, we would all be unified. Finally, be all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren. Be pitiful. Be courteous. Not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise, blessing, knowing that ye are thereto, thereunto called. That's what we're called to do. To give blessing in place of evil, in place of railing, knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. You know, there's a lot wrapped up in that verse. I'll just mention a few things. Somebody does something to us that hurts. We don't like it. They did it to us. And so now we want to do something to them. Or at least we don't want to unite with them uh, because of what they did to us. Also, we see people that manifest weaknesses and, and uh, problems. And so, we look down on them. Sometimes we even talk about them. 
because one of the big ones is people waste money, you know? Uh, we've learned in our life how to really be careful with money, but we see many people that waste money. They could live on a lot less if they just didn't waste. But what is our reaction to that? We condemn them, either in our mind or to other people. Uh, these are the things that cause the church not to be unified. But, fortunately, there was a solution. And that solution is found in James 5, 16. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. You might say, well, how can that be the answer? Because the most righteous man that ever walked this earth is praying for unity. And in 5th Bible Commentary, page 1145, talking about this prayer, which is found in John 17, is a lesson regarding the intercession that the Savior would carry on within the veil. So although just before he went into the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed the prayer we find in John 17, this prayer was one that he was going to keep on praying up in heaven. This prayer is a lesson regarding the intercession that the Savior would carry on within the veil, when his great sacrifice in behalf of men, the offering of himself, should have been completed. Our mediator gave his disciples this illustration of his ministry in the heavenly sanctuary. So we can know that right now, and ever since Jesus prayed that prayer, once he got back to heaven, He's been praying the same prayer. And we're going to look at a portion of it which applies to unity. Found in verses 20 to 23 in John 17. Jesus said, Neither pray I for these alone. So he's obviously praying for his disciples, those 12 disciples that he has been commissioned to get ready to carry on the gospel, but he said, Father, I'm asking not just for them, neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. How many of us have believed on Jesus through the word of the apostles? Every hand should go up. Because that's the only way you learn about the gospel. So this prayer was for us, even when he started it back then. Then what did he want? That they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee. Absolute, perfect unity. 
that they also may be one in us. Now, there's the secret. Only as we become one with Jesus can we be one with each other. That the world may believe that thou hast sent me, and the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one. We're going to look at that phrase. What is the glory that he wants us to have that the result of getting that glory will be that we're all one, even as we are one? I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. I don't know how many people through the years in the work that God has called Seventh-day Adventists to do have wanted to see the day come when that text would be fulfilled. But in general, we still wait for that. Now let's just, in point form, look at what were the requests that Jesus was actually making. First one, for all who would accept him as their savior to be one. Now it's impossible to be one if we don't have Jesus in our heart. There's just no possibility. So, he was not praying that everybody would have unity, but he was praying that everyone who would accept him as their Savior would become one, which includes us. He also was asking that the unity would be just like the Father and the Son have, and of course the Holy Spirit, although that's not mentioned in that text, the unity that they have, that kind of unity. Now, we can look at the life of Jesus and we cannot find one instance where he differed with the Father, not even one. Absolute, full unity. He was praying for that. Number three, he was praying for us to receive his glory because he knew that was the only way that the unity could really happen. Also, number four, he was praying for us to be perfectly united to the Father through Jesus. And that, again, is how we could be unified. Then the result would be, number five, for us to be fully united to each other. And the result of that, when that happens, for the world to know that Jesus was sent by the Father. So these are the things that weigh heavy on Jesus' heart. Can you imagine how it bothers him to see all the dissension, all of the lack of unity that exists today, even within an institution like this, the amount of disunity 
is very hurtful to Jesus. And every time something happens, he says this prayer again, Father, please help them at Wildwood to really get unified together. Now, as you will see, as I finish this study, that it might not be that everybody at Wildwood can get unified because it depends upon everyone being united to Jesus. Now let's look at some of these points a little bit. What about this glory that he wanted us to have? Desire of Ages, page 20. It will be seen that the glory shining in the face of Jesus is the glory of self-sacrificing love. How many of us just can't wait till the next time we get to sacrifice? Jesus had a glory, and that glory was self-sacrificing love. Not me first, not what I want first, but what does somebody else want if it's according to God's will? In the light from Calvary, it will be seen that the law of self-renouncing love is the law of life for earth and heaven. That the love which seeketh not her own has its source in the heart of God. And that in the meek and lowly one <laughs> is manifested the character of him who dwelleth in the light which no man can approach unto. From the time Jesus came into this world until the time he left, and of course it doesn't stop there, but it was a life of continual self-sacrifice. Just to even stay here was sacrifice because he was from a better place. And if at any time there had been a lack of self-sacrifice, he would have left and not completed his mission. So he's saying, Father, please help them to get the picture of the blessing of sacrifice. You know, let's suppose that just on the issue of women's ordination, that everyone would get that picture of the blessing of sacrificing what they want and what they think ought to be best, and to really find a way to steady until they can be united. Wow. That would shock everybody. But of course, the whole world knows Adventists are in disagreement. Not just on that, but a whole lot of things. Why? Because we haven't been seeing the blessing of the glory of his character, which is self-sacrificing love, which is self-renouncing love, which is someone who does not seek her own. In a letter, 30, in 1895, it says, Without entirely sacrificing self, we 
cannot love one another as Jesus has loved us. And the next step is we can't be unified. If we don't have that, if we don't entirely have sacrificing, willing to sacrifice self, we cannot love one another as Jesus loved us. This is conformity to the image of Christ. But the standard of Christianity is trailing in the very dust. People are saying how these Adventists can fight, how they can fuss with each other and scrap with each other and speak against each other. True religion is to follow Christ, but a religion built upon selfishness is worthless. Haven't we been trying long enough to build on selfishness? Me first, my ideas first, what I think I want first. We can never be unified because there's always somebody that wants something different. In regard to the need to be unified with him, Acts of the Apostles, page 20. In these first disciples was presented marked diversity. By the way, uh, self-supporting work has the same problem. Too many people want to be leaders. When you study the apostles, all 12 of them wanted to be leaders. In these first disciples was presented marked diversity. They were to be the world's teachers, and they represented widely varied types of character. In order successfully to carry forward the work to which they had been called, these men, differing in natural characteristics and in habits of life, needed to come into unity of feeling, thought, and action. That was the task that was given to Jesus, to bring these 12 men into perfect unity with each other. Well, he failed with one, but he succeeded with the other 11 to get them into the unity, and no doubt it was primarily because of his prayers and the witness of his own life. Notice how we differ. We differ in natural characteristics. That's why we rub each other the wrong way. We bother each other. Also, our habits of life are different. And so it's hard to really blend together as one. Especially when it used to be we had uh, student homes where they ate and, and worked and and had worship with a family, and they had to live a really close range. And you found out about these natural characteristics and habits of life. It says, this unity it was Christ's object to secure. To this end, he sought to bring them into, and there it is again, unity with himself. There's only one way to become unified, and that's for every one of us to become more like Jesus. <laughs> we won't leave this room 
and be all unified together. Not going to happen. But the more we become like Jesus, the more unified we will be. And so if we're on the track, the day will come where we will have the unity that everybody wanted. In Councils to the Church, page 76, says, wonderful statement. The unity that exists between Christ and his disciples does not destroy the personality of either. You know, we've been made unique for a purpose. We don't have to surrender that. And yet, we can still have unity without surrendering our individuality. Here's what becomes one. They are one in purpose. We have one purpose, and that's to take the gospel to the world. When that's done, we go home. So we have one purpose, and I've often thought, you know, if you're at war with somebody and you're in a foxhole and you're fighting uh, the war and somebody steps on your toe, you're not going to worry about that at all. You're glad there's somebody else with a rifle besides yourself. You're focused on the war. And when God's people get focused on the war, instead of the things that we do to each other, it's going to make a difference. One in purpose. Also, one in mind. And we're going to read, how can we be one in mind? Also, we're one in character. Not that our... Uh, Personality becomes identical, but our character becomes so much like Jesus that we're one with each other. Um, they are one in purpose, in mind, in character, but not in person. It is thus that God and Christ are one. So, again, we see when we get united with them, then we really have unity. However, Satan has a plan, and unfortunately, his plan succeeds often. In uh, 7 Testimonies 156 and 7, Satan <clears throat> is always seeking to cause dissension. As soon as we are tempted to say something, or do something that will cause dissension, what should come in our mind? We're listening to Satan. And that should check it right there. We're listening to Satan. So let's not uh, say that. Let's not talk about that. Satan is always seeking to cause dissension. For well he knows that by this means he can most effectually counteract the work of God. And we see that happening. We see the work can't go like it should. That's why so many want unity, because they see what happens. But we have to cure the problem, otherwise we don't get the unity. All true laborers for God will work in harmony with this prayer. All true laborers for God will work in harmony with this prayer. In their efforts to advance the work, all will manifest that oneness of sentiment and practice which reveals 
that they are God's witnesses, that they love one another. To a world that is broken up by discord and strife, their love and unity will testify to their connection with heaven. It is the convincing evidence of the divine character of their mission. When this happens, the world is going to take notice of Seventh-day Adventists. They're going to say something has happened to Seventh-day Adventists. It is the convincing evidence of the divine character of their mission. Here's another part of the recipe found in Gospel Workers, page 391. When he, the Spirit of Truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. The Holy Spirit doesn't tell one person to interpret the Bible this way and another person to interpret it that way. Somebody is not listening to the Spirit. When he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. That's a quote from John 16, 13. Through the Holy Spirit, Christ will open more clearly to those who will believe on him. That which he has inspired holy men to write concerning the truth. When there is a disagreement... It is a call to study together. Not to convince the other person that they need to accept what you think, but to put what you think in the background and look at it again, listening carefully to what the other one has to say. Now, there are some theories that are so crazy you don't have to do that with, but there are things, many things, that we need to do that with. I've tried that a few times, but you know what I find? People don't really want to come into unity. They're not really that burdened. They, they're more burdened to convince you what they believe. And so that is hindering us, but somebody is not listening to the Holy Spirit properly. And if we all would be humble and come together, we would be able to see it alike. That's what this is telling us. And it is thus that the unity for which Christ prayed is to be effected. We are to receive sanctification through obedience to the word and the spirit of truth. So when we study the Bible, often we discover something we need to obey. And so it takes both steps. We can't just understand it. We have to do it. We have to practice it. And that causes sanctification, which helps us to be more like Jesus and to more and more move toward the position of unity. Now, it can seem kind of impossible, especially for how long people have been trying. But notice this beautiful statement from Peter's Council to Parents. Page 46. Scarcely can the human mind comprehend 
So if we have a struggle, it says we will. We will have a struggle. Scarcely can the human mind comprehend what is the breadth and depth and height of the spiritual attainments that can be reached by becoming partakers of the divine nature. What we, <clears throat> what we expect could happen to us is too low. We have to think higher of what can happen to us. The human agent who daily yields obedience to God, who becomes a partaker of the divine nature, finds pleasure daily in keeping the commandments of God. Why does he find pleasure? For he is one with God. And so as we become like Jesus, we have pleasure in doing what's right. It is essential that he holds as vital a relation with God as does the Son to the Father. So that's our possibility. And, and scarcely can a human mind comprehend that, but it tells us anyway, so that we can by faith believe that it can happen. <clears throat> he understands, but it really means experiences here. He experiences the oneness that Christ prayed might exist between the Father and the Son. Does that sound good? That you can experience that oneness, and when you are one with him, you're one with every other true believer. That's what he wants us to catch a vision of. This is the possibility that stands before us. Why should we settle for anything else? In the Fifth Testimonies, page 488, it gives this counsel. Let each one who claims to follow Christ esteem himself less and others more. So if I have an opinion about something, I am to esteem myself less and the other's opinion more. Press together, press together. In union, there is strength and victory. In discord and division, there is weakness and defeat. These words have been spoken to me from heaven. Now, you know, everything that L.Y. wrote was revealed to her by God. But when it says those words, we can know it's something important. These words have been spoken to me from heaven. As God's ambassador, I speak them to you. And what are the words spoken to her from heaven? Let each one who claims to follow Christ esteem himself less and others more. Press together, press together. Why? Because in union, there is strength and victory. But in discord, and division, there is weakness and defeat. When will this wonderful unity take place? Six Testimonies, 400 and 401. 
when the storm of persecution really breaks upon us, that one we need to think about a moment. If you would really like to have unity, you're asking for persecution. When the storm of persecution really breaks upon us, the people of God will draw together and present to the enemy a united front. As long as it's peaceful like it is now, we will never be in unity together. But the day is coming when we have to fight the enemy and we're glad for every soldier we've got we will get unified. The people of God will draw together and present to the enemy a united front in view of the common peril. Strife for supremacy will what? Cease. We don't care who's in charge. We don't care who has the position. We just want to get the job done. Strife for supremacy will cease. There will be no disputing as to who shall be accounted the greatest. Thus, here's the result of that kind of unity. Thus will the truth be brought into practical life. And thus will be answered the prayer of Christ. Now, that doesn't mean we can't begin now and seek for it now. But we're not going to get it until persecution comes. So if we're really earnest, if you really would like the unity, and I think we ought to be, and we're asking for persecution to help finish the task and get us fully unified together so that we can finish the work. Now, there are uh, three times that it's going to happen. Two already and one in the future. It happened in the early church, right at the beginning anyway. Apparently as things went on, it got to where it wasn't so unified. But in the early church, especially there right after Pentecost, we see that beautiful unity between all of those that were true followers of Jesus. And then I've just finished sharing with the students about the Millerite movement, and you see the same beauty in the Millerite movement, the unity that was uh, in their midst. And it's going to happen again, probably even more perfect under the latter reign, when God brings about this wonderful unity. Now, I didn't uh, put this reference in here, but what we see right now is both separation and unity. We don't see just unity going on. We see separation and we see unity. Because God is building the true followers of his to be unified more and more as we go along. But they're not going to be unified with those that are not the true followers of Jesus. It just can't be. Then will be fulfilled this text from the Bible, Song of Solomon, chapter 6, verse 10. Who is she? And the she here is the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Who is she? 
that looketh forth as the morning, fair as the moon, clear as the sun, and terrible as an army with banners. In other words, the enemy ought to be scared to death because there is power in this unity, in the message that is given in a unified way, and it's going to turn this world upside down as a result of it. I found this one from Ministry to the Cities, page 29. When this prayer of Christ is answered for his people in this age, when this unity exists among Seventh-day Adventists, there will be a tremendous influence going forth from them to the world. So do we carry, care more about having our own way or more about getting this tremendous influence that's going to shake up the world? It says there will be a tremendous influence going forth from them to the world. Reformations will take place first in our ranks and then in those for whom we labor will be seen the transformation of character for which Christ so earnestly prayed. And we could say he's still earnestly praying for that today. In closing, how does it how does unity happen? We have to be willing to surrender all of self. Now, we don't see it all tonight. But what we do see, we have to be willing to surrender. And later, we'll see some more self. And we have to surrender that until there's no more self to surrender. Those that are not willing to do that will never get the unity that Jesus was praying about. Second, we have to be allowing the Holy Spirit to interpret the Bible and the spirit of prophecy. People disagree even what the spirit of prophecy says. But we have to get to the place where our own interpretation is less important than understanding exactly, as it reads, what it meant. And if that will happen, then we are moving in the direction of the unity that Jesus prayed for. And of course, number three, when we get fully united with Jesus, we will have the unity that he prayed for. Fifth Testimony 619, as members of the visible church and workers in the vineyard of the Lord, all professed Christians should do their what? At most, to preserve peace, harmony, and love in the church. Is that what you're doing? Are you working to your utmost to preserve peace, to preserve harmony, and love in the church? If not, I invite you to start tonight to do your utmost to bring that about. Now, it will take time, as I've said, and we won't get it all till we get to that point. But 
It's those that are putting forth their utmost that are going to end up getting it. In Review and Herald of July 24, 1894, there will never be any true unity between or with those who stand under the banner of Satan. So unity cannot exist between true followers of Jesus and those that are not. It is a grave mistake on the part of those who are children of God to seek to bridge the gulf that separates the children of light from the children of darkness by yielding principle, by compromising the truth. So unity by compromising the truth is not what God asked for. He's asking for unity squarely based upon truth and the attitude coming from the closeness that we have with Jesus as we move toward that clear understanding of his word. 